Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. The holidays are here and it's time to give thanks, to reflect and celebrate traditions with family and friends. Welcome to Disrupted, I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we explore winter holidays from cultures around the world. And later, we'll share some holiday movies that you must see. For me, celebrating the holidays is all about reconnecting with family and friends, taking a step back from the hustle and bustle, and just enjoying some simple pleasures. But sometimes when I gather with my friends or or even with my coworkers, questions come up about proper social courtesies. For more on proper holiday etiquette, we're joined now by Terry Bryant. She's a lifestyle and etiquette expert and owner of the Swan School of Protocol in Bridgeport. Terry, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. You know, the holiday season is upon us. Uh, many of us will be in situations where we may or may not be comfortable, and protocol is always key. Before we talk about holiday protocol and etiquette, share with our listeners a little about the Swan School of Protocol and what you offer within that enterprise. Yes, the Swan School of Protocol is a nationwide training institute founded by America's leading lifestyle etiquette expert, Elaine Swan. Uh, We have over 30 plus uh, locations throughout the United States and abroad, and each of the Swan Schools is individually owned and operated. So I'm proud to say that I'm one of the first women of color here in Connecticut to proudly own and operate the Swan School of Protocol in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And what I do is I provide those etiquette services for businesses, individuals, and our communities as it relates to social courtesies, self-presentation, and personal development skills for all ages. Terry, you just captured so much in that intro. (laughs) And it's it's critical because there are a number yes. of dynamics there, right? You are a woman of color. You yes. are running this business in Bridgeport, which is a city in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And you are working with people from young children to those who are in the corporate sector. And all of those spaces, all of those identities, I think speak to why it's so critical for us to have you on the show. I'm a Southerner grew up where order, decorum is key. And in some ways, I feel we've become a very casual society. So when people talk about etiquette and protocol, they may have these visions of these very ornate British aristocratic dinners and places. But really what your work is saying is no, etiquette is about our everyday interactions, how we engage with others, how we present ourselves, and how we're comfortable because we know what to do or what not to do. How do you exactly. think that protocol and etiquette have changed over time? Um, you know, just you just seeing the youth today, um, I think a lot of times they just don't know because they weren't taught. And sometimes even as parents, we weren't taught. So then we continue this cycle. And so that's why it's near and dear to my heart to kind of engage and try to enrich the lives of our young people to learn and to know how to become socially successful is what I like to call it. 
And my goal is to just simply give them hope. And hope is an acronym that I created called Help One Person Every Day. And so whatever that can look like, I'm going to try to do my best and strive for them to become socially successful in our communities and be that purposeful partner to them as well. What I hear from you, Terry, is that these are not soft skills. They are life skills and life skills that can carry us not just in our professional setting, but personal as well. And one of those settings that can be very uncomfortable during the season is giving and receiving gifts, the proper etiquette and protocol around that. So let me ask you this question. If I receive a gift, is it proper to open that gift in front of a person, in particular the person who gave it to me, or should I wait and open it later? Well, it depends on your setting. So if you're all around the Christmas tree and everyone is opening gifts, Yes, you should open the gift in front of everyone. However, if you get a gift from a coworker or you get a gift from someone at church, you're not obligated to necessarily open the gift in front of them. But of course, you want to be mindful and always say thank you for for the gift and then just proceed on. But you really don't have to. I like that understanding that context matters, setting matters. So if I'm not obligated to open the gift in front of the person, am I obligated to return a gift or to give a gift to someone who is given to me? You are absolutely not obligated to give a gift to them. All you have to do is just look them in the eye and simply say thank you with a heartfelt thank you. But if you feel that you want to still give them something, it's always best to follow it up with a thank you card and let them know that you really appreciated their thoughtfulness. So I have to confess, I'm a bit of a stickler when it comes to thank you cards. I'm the mom to a teenage daughter who we have said since she was little, if someone gives you something, you say thank you, and you also send a card. So it has evolved from the scribbles of a three-year-old to now stationary with her monogram on it, because I want her to get into the habit of being appreciative and not taking things for granted. What's your take on thank you cards? I know you mentioned that that is an option. What's your take on thank you cards more generally? I just think it's more personable to do so. Depending on who gave you that gift, what if, whether it's a grandma or old someone older who you respect highly, they love getting something in writing or receiving something in the mail because that lets them know you sat down and took time out to really consider them just the way that they did when they bought you the gift. And so that handwritten note is something that they will always be able to hold on to as well as treasure. You know, I started a practice in my own job of sending handwritten notes to employees who Mm -hmm. have achieved something, who may be going through something. And I send a handwritten note because I do think it's more personal than an email. It requires more thought, but I think Mm -hmm. it also speaks to proper workplace etiquette and how we set the tone for what we expect. And now that we are in this holiday season, we are bombarded with company holiday parties or get togethers. And I know that for every human resources professional, it is the time of year when they get nervous because Mm -hmm. people may drink more than they should or be more (laughs) comfortable than they should be. Talk to us, Terry, about the advice that you give to people 
who may be attending their company holiday parties and gatherings, or maybe the guest of someone who is at their company party? Yes. So this one is a, a common one that I get a lot of questions about. Um, you want to always be mindful of the drinking aspect, right? Everyone wants to be sociable at this time of the season, and that is great, and that is fine. But also remember who you are, right, and what you represent as a company and as an individual person. So when the drinks are flowing and people are excited and they are, you know, enjoying themselves, think about how much you intake and try to put a cap on it, no more than two drinks. And that way you're still being sociable. And even if you feel like you want a little bit more and you just need to have something in your hand, just go get a, a glass of um, uh, something with color. I would say cranberry juice, right? And you can still be sociable and walk around and still feel that you're a part of something, but also being safe and, and mindful of where you are. Let's talk about a different space, because at least in business settings, people tend to be a little more respectful of boundaries and of personal choice, if for no other reason than being afraid of getting in trouble and getting called into an HR office. That is often not the case in family settings or personal friendship settings, where there's lots of pressures, lots of challenges. And for some people, it could be a little uncomfortable because of the lack of respect for the boundaries. One of the settings that is key within that is getting people to engage beyond their phones, their smart devices, and other distractions. What's a strategy that you have to get people engaged in those family settings beyond their devices? I know for the teenagers, that is key, right? They love their cell phones. Um, and I kind of just encourage you to kind of embrace that because you don't want to kind of ruffle the feathers for the holiday seasons. You want everyone to be comfortable. So I always recommend that you get them engaged um, with their phones meaning give them an assignment for the day, right? You have some questions that you can gather up so that they can start going around meeting family members they may not even know or meeting people that they've never really engaged in um, on a daily basis. And that way they can use their phones. It's an opportunity for them to interview their family members, um, to create family games because they love TikTok and they want to do a challenge here and there. And it's like a twofold. You're getting the family to engage. They are not getting upset because you've taken their phone and then everybody is happy and we're having a great time. So I say, yes, let them hold their phones, let them engage, but let them be able to create games and give them assignments to do. So everyone is being um, a part of the family and the engagement of the holiday season. Terry, I'm convinced that you, with that advice, are going to save a lot of family from headaches and from drama yes. because it's engaging people, right? It's engaging them where they are, what they enjoy, doing something fun that doesn't feel like I'm going to be put in the corner and looked at because I don't want to do these things, but it's actually a way of creating memories together. It is. At the same time, sometimes the conversations within families, and I say family broadly, whether it's the ones we create or the ones that we are 
choosing to be part of. Sometimes those conversations can get political or they can get personal. And, you know, I remember being single, the question was always, well, when are you going to get married? And then when I got married, it was, well, when are you going to have a baby or when's the next one? And you want to be respectful, you want to engage, but you also want to say, I just came to have fun. I didn't really come for an interrogation or a political debate. What would be the proper respectful way to respond when conversations come up about topics that you may or may not want to engage? The the question about when are you going to have a baby? When are you getting married? That is a big one. Um, And so what I suggest is to kind of pivot and shift a little bit, right? So you don't necessarily want to have to always just tell everybody your business, right? But you just say, you know what? I haven't gotten married yet, but how are you doing? How are your grandchildren? I heard Johnny graduated this year. Tell me all about it. And that way it kind of shifts the conversation. You you gave them saying, hey, I, I acknowledge I'm not, I haven't gotten married yet. But now let's talk about something else. Or sometimes you just have to pull people on the carpet. You just have to tell them straight up, you know what, today, I'm not talking about that. And let's move on. And you say with a smile. I want to ask one follow up because I know that this will be critical for our listeners who many of our listeners are into politics and are engaging this. Mm-hmm. What should we do when a conversation comes up about politics that may be disrespectful or uh, divisive? How should we respond in those settings? Um, I recommend that definitely talk about it. You know, a lot of people always are trying to shy away from that. No, let's talk about it, but create a time and a space to do so. And what I mean is that even if you're at your holiday event and you start hearing someone talk about certain things, you kind of set the boundary to say, hey, you know what? We can chat about this around dessert time for about an hour. But then you may have that group. There may be more than one or two people who want to talk about that. Create a separate room for that. You know, that way, those that may not want to engage, they don't have to. But if you create a separate room for them to hash it out and say what they feel is on their heart, but also make sure you have someone in that room that they respect and that they will make sure to keep the volume down, to keep everyone at bay. Because if Aunt Susie or Uncle Joe says, okay, that's enough they're going to kind of shut it down. They're going to be that person in the room to help ease some of the tension. So we don't want anything to pop off, as the kids would say. But if you have someone in that room that is well-respected, then that conversation can continue on and that there will be some type of boundary set within that room. As we come to a close, what is it about etiquette that you're passionate about that you want others to also embrace? What I'm passionate about is just seeing our people, our our children to be well-mannered in the public settings. Um, I have several classes that support that. And I just really want them to understand and to see themselves for who they are and who they've been created to be. And that is to be successful no matter what, whether you have a college degree or you don't, being socially successful speaks volumes because it represents who you are and what your parents have strived to uh, raise and to become in society. 
I want to reiterate the point. These are not just etiquette tips. These are not just protocol tips. You are really giving people tools for life about how to engage one another in a respectful way, in a way that affirms the humanity of each of us. And as you said, allowing people to be their beautiful and brilliant selves. Terry Bryant is a lifestyle and etiquette expert consultant. She's owner of the Swan School of Protocol in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, we'll learn about religious holidays that are celebrated around the world in December. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're discussing winter holidays and traditions. Here's a question for you. What's your go-to salutation for this time of year? Is it Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, or Season's Greetings? If you see me out in public, chances are I'm going to say Happy Holidays. Many people celebrate Christmas, Hanukkah, or Kwanzaa, but there are other holiday traditions that are celebrated every winter around the world. Here now to educate us on a few of those world traditions is Dr. Aaron M. Gale. He's Associate Professor of Religious Studies at West Virginia University. Dr. Gale, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we talk about holidays and traditions, I want our listeners to get a sense of you as a scholar, because when we say religious studies, it means so many things to different people. What inspires your interest in religious studies? Well, as I tell my students and my colleagues, I am not a theologian, which is a whole different subset of religious studies. I call myself 
a frustrated historian and stand-up comic. Um, but in reality, my love of religious studies came out of my love for history, my love for ancient cultures, um, my own traditions that I came from. So my studies, although initially biblically based, my PhD is from Northwestern University, actually in biblical studies. Um, but as I entered into my scholarship phase of my career and joined the faculty of West Virginia University, I was fortunate enough to travel to many conferences all over the world. And as I traveled, I realized that each religion, each culture, each country that I visited had its own set of unique traditions. And I'm, when I talk about traditions, I mean religious traditions, cultural traditions, food traditions, what have you. And so I really developed, I really um, developed this love for world cultures and world religion. You know, what I think is is amazing listening to you, Aaron, is that it's not just a passion and an interest, but what I hear from you is a curiosity and a respect for the many different ways that people form communities or form celebrations or affirm community through that celebration and that gathering. And I think it's something that often here in the United States, we take for granted of how different world communities come together in these celebrations. And so our conversation is airing on December 6th, and there's a key holiday tradition happening today and in Hungary. So talk to us about that Hungarian tradition that's celebrating St. Nicholas. December 6th, and it's not just in Hungary, although I'll talk about the Hungarian experience uniquely, um, throughout Europe and several countries is what's called St. Nicholas Day. Not all countries celebrate Santa Claus, St. Nicholas on December 24th or December 25th. In some countries, it is believed St. Nicholas, who was likely an, an historical third and fourth century bishop from Turkey, visited on December 6th and came to children and left them with gifts. The real St. Nicholas likely became known as um, the patron saint of children because it was believed that he helped children during his lifetime many centuries ago. But in Hungary, what happens on the night of December 5th, the night before St. Nicholas Day, or in Hungarian, Mikulash, that's how they pronounce Nicholas, is children will leave their shoes and boots by their window in the hopes that St. Nicholas will visit them overnight and leave them candy, sweets, and things like that if they've been a good child. If they have not been a good child, there is a more modern link to this story that involves a sort of infamous creature that we sometimes come across in horror movies named the Krampus, which probably the word Krampus was probably German. It probably was an ancient German tradition. The word Krampus means claw. And it probably originated somewhere around 1,000, 1,200 years ago, maybe in Germany, that there was this horned creature that would punish you for being bad. So what happened a few centuries ago in Hungary is these two traditions sort of melded together. And it is now believed that on the night of December 5th, after the children leave their shoes out, if they are good children, St. Mikulash will leave them candy, sweets, and presents in their shoes. But if they are bad, the Krampus will punish them by leaving sticks in their shoes. 
And I found this tradition, this December 6th, St. Nicholas Day, very interesting and something that I definitely wanted to share with my students. And, um, and I'm fortunate to be able to share this tradition with you today. I have to say your students are very fortunate because the energy that you bring into sharing these stories, the passion that you have, and also this reminder of how these traditions connect us in global ways. So how we may observe a particular celebration may differ a little, but there are elements that are familiar. And I was smiling as you were recounting that story because it reminded me of a world traditions class that I took in eighth grade, where we learned about this. And for years, we would put our shoes by the window because of what we had learned. Let's talk about another celebration that's coming up. I have a new little baby cousin whose name is Bodhi. And when I was told that had this, thank you. When I was told that the baby's name would be Bodhi, I was like, Bodhi is in the Buddhist tradition or help me understand. And in fact, that is the connection. So on December 8th, many Buddhists will be celebrating this. Talk to us about what this represents and why it's celebrated. Well, just to give you a background on your dear little cousin's name, Bodhi comes from Pali or Sanskrit. It means like enlightened. And on December 8th, Many Buddhists, not all Buddhists, and the date of December 8th also varies. Some Buddhists in China and other countries will follow a lunar calendar and practice this holiday elsewhere. But for many, in particular, Mahayana Buddhists, December 8th is the Bodhi Day, is the holiday of Bodhi. And in this holiday, this celebrates the transition, if you will, or the blossoming, if you will, of Prince Siddhartha into the Buddha. Bodhi means enlightened. A Buddha is one who is enlightened. So in other words, Buddha is more a title than it is a name. Nobody ever called him, hey, there's Joe Buddha. So similarly, Prince Siddhartha, this prince who was born around modern day Nepal, the story goes that he was a pampered young man And he was, you know, lived his childhood within the confines of a beautiful palace. And according to the story, when he's about 29, Prince Siddhartha goes for some chariot rides. He wants to see the outside world. And while he goes on these chariot rides, Prince Siddhartha realized that there is suffering called dukkha. There's real suffering in this world. So he sets out to try to solve this dilemma of human suffering. He lives the life of a monk for several years and realizes this is not the way to go. So the story of Bodhi Day sort of culminates when one day the Buddha is meditating under a Bodhi tree. That's where the word comes from. Traditionally, sort of maybe a ficus tree or something like that. And he goes into a deep meditation. Some say for days, some say for weeks. And while he's in this meditation, he faces the temptation by this evil spirit called Mara. This evil spirit tries to tempt him with wealth, sort of a devil-like character, and ultimately, among other things, even tries to seduce Prince Siddhartha with his own three daughters. And of course, Prince Siddhartha, being the noble person that he is, he refuses all these temptations. And when he comes out of his meditation, He has come up with what he believes has solved the riddle of human suffering. And the the solving of the suffering is known in Buddhism to this day, 2,500 years later, as the Four Noble Truths. 
It is then where the Buddha become where Prince Siddhartha becomes the Buddha. He is now an enlightened one. So Bodhi Day celebrates the awakening, if you will, the enlightenment of, if you will, of the Buddha. And it is celebrated with meditation. Some Buddhists celebrate by um, eating certain foods. Um, but the holiday is mostly observed, as I said, within the Mahayana Buddhist traditions. Um, so basically, Buddhists who honor Bodhi Day really celebrate the achievement of Prince Siddhartha becoming the Buddha, the arrival, if you will, of the Enlightened One. Many people are now familiar with Hanukkah and Kwanzaa as multi-day celebrations or acknowledgments and reconnections. But there's also a Hindu celebration that is multi-day, and correct my pronunciation if I get this wrong, I believe it's called Pancha Ganapati. Talk to us Very about, good. Did I get it? Perfect. Oh, great. You got it. <laughs> Talk to us about that celebration, Aaron. Pancha Ganapati is indeed a Hindu celebration, and it generally lasts for from December 21st to December 25th. In essence, this Hindu celebration, Ganapati is really a name for who may be the most popular Hindu god, Ganesh or Ganesha. It's another name for him. Pancha means like five. Because it's believed by some Hindus that Ganesh actually has five different um, aspects or different faces to him. But it takes place from December 21st to December 25th every year. It is a relatively modern Hindu holiday. On a very practical level, people began to realize in the modern era that Christmas in the Christian tradition, especially in many Christian countries, was sort of overshadowing other holidays. So Panchaganapati was probably a holiday that at least originated to sort of be the Hindu equivalent in some ways of Christmas, of the Christian Christmas. So, for example, during this holiday, which celebrates Ganesh or Ganesha, this elephant, very famous image of the elephant-headed god, who is a god of new ventures, a remover of obstacles, um, children will receive gifts each day. They won't open them till the last day, typically, of Panchaganapati. But this is a time where families get together, they give gifts, they do puja or worship at Hindu temples. They're thankful for what they have. And also a time to reflect upon the last year and think about what you want to accomplish, what your family wants to be like for the coming year. So this is indeed a multi-day celebration, and it's a very important holiday in the Hindu tradition. One other holiday or occasion, celebration, if you will, that's getting, I think, increased interest for a number of reasons is Solstice Day, which is December 21st. Aaron, tell us what Solstice Day is about or what it represents. Well, this is where we... um we talk about the relationship between different um, religions. And Solstice, Solstice Day is celebrated by many various neo-pagan and Wiccan traditions. And I want to be careful here that we don't stereotype or don't lump together, if you will, um, all these different neo-pagan um, traditions and things like that, because they are celebrated very differently. But in many cultures, 
the time around December 21st, December 22nd, December 23rd, it's the day where we have the longest night and the shortest amount of daylight. And in many different cultures, not just in in neo-pagan or Wiccan cultures, this idea of wrestling with light and darkness, this idea of acknowledging the limitations of light, the presence of darkness is something that a lot of these festivals um, center around. So Solstice Day, and it's celebrated variously by many neo-pagan Wiccan um, traditionalists to this day. Some bake cakes, some meditate, some have um, charity drives. It is celebrated a varied amount of ways. But in essence, what it celebrates is light. And this is also another holiday of reflection. It's a time to reflect upon the coming light. Because after the winter solstice, people sometimes forget the days are getting longer. So we are gradually entering into time physically and allegorically, perhaps, a time of more enduring light. I know it's become politically controversial to say these two words of happy holidays. But I think, Professor, you have just captured why it is so appropriate, because there are so many holidays, so many celebrations that are happening. And even if they are not the tradition to which we ascribe, that baseline of appreciation, of reflection, of commitment and connection seem to run through all of them. And that to me is what makes this appreciation for world religions and world traditions so key. Well, you used the great word there, connection. Many of the holiday traditions that we have, for example, the Christian celebration of Christmas, they are linked in some ways to earlier pagan traditions. Religions are connected as much as sometimes we feel uncomfortable admitting that. We don't like to admit that. But in some ways, there are some religions, the fancy religious scholarly term is syncretism, the idea that religions borrow from each other. Examples in Christian um, Christmas, of course, Christmas trees. Um, as I jokingly tell my students, I don't see anywhere in the Bible where Jesus colors Easter eggs. Um, so in some way, religions that we might not think are linked in some ways have become linked. And some of these pagan traditions, some of these earlier traditions, solstice celebrations, Yule celebrations, and things like that did become incorporated, especially into Christianity, as some of these European countries converted over to Christianity a 1,000 or 1,200 years ago. When you are adopting, as many European countries did, a new tradition, in this case Christianity, you can't just ditch everything else. You can't just tell people, stop worshiping your other gods, stop following these other traditions. So really, we are connected to some of these previous religious traditions, whether they be biblical or pagan or whatever. In some ways, we have connected, whether we want to admit it or we don't. Dr. Aaron M. Gale is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at West Virginia University. Thank you, Professor. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. When we return, we'll talk to journalist Filiana Ng about this season's must-see holiday movies. You're listening to Disrupted.
Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about all things holiday. Now, it wouldn't really be the holidays without a great movie celebrating this end-of-year cheer. One of my all-time favorite holiday movies is called Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Head full of good thoughts, belly full of grub, money in your pocket when there ain't no hole in the wash tub. Sweetest honeysuckle on the vine, ma. Your nails won't break and your toes won't stub. You never get a fever when there ain't no hole in the wash tub. If you look to the good side, falling down's a free ride, slipping and a sliding in the mud. If your back is hurting, I can say for certain, I'll be there to treat you to a soothing bag ride. When there ain't no hole in the wash tub I love the artistry and the puppetry of the film. I love the way it makes me feel. And perhaps most importantly, and a little bit embarrassingly, I love to sing along with the characters, even if it's really off key. The 2023 festive film lineup features more than 100 movies that are airing on broadcasts and streaming platforms. That's according to People.com. Entertainment and television journalist Filiana Ng joins me now to share the movies that are must-see. Filiana, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. We are deep into the holiday season, but perhaps most importantly, we are deep into the holiday movie season. Share with our listeners what makes holiday movies so attractive and appealing. I think there are a lot of factors as to why holiday movies are especially appealing and kind of the go-to destination for a lot of people, especially at this time of year. I think at the end of the year, when we reach December, we're very reflective. We're looking back on the year that was, what we may have accomplished, what we may not have achieved. Um, And it's a time when, you know, everyone is is in a little bit more of a nostalgic feeling, right? So I think that's one factor. And I think a lot of these movies really cater to that feeling, that emotion, that comfort that we're all kind of seeking. Um, And I think that's a big part as to why they're so popular and have been popular for the last um, several years, even decades even. I want to pull out a word that you just said, which was comfort, right? We're in this mode. It's often a very busy, hectic time, and we want this comfort. And the other piece for me is that the plot lines are so incredibly predictable. You can tell almost from the beginning of the movie where it's going to end. What are some of the more predictable plot lines? There's always a twist, but what are the predictable plot lines that we see in holiday movies? There's always going to be a, you know, central kind of holiday themed gathering that everyone's working toward, right? There's that Christmas tree lighting event at the end of the movie, or there's a cookie baking <laughs> competition. Those are a lot of the the, the kind of um, typical kind of things that you would see in the holiday movies and in these kind of settings. But in terms of plot lines, it's, you know, the same thing. It's, you know, the, the big city career woman who returns home. 
uh, and in a small town and, and reunites or bumps into a, a, an, an ex-boyfriend or something at the local coffee shop. And then from there, things kind of happen. Um, it's, it's things like that. It's amazing to me because, you know, as you said, this has really taken off over the last few years. And when we think about the sort of traditional holiday movies like A Christmas Carol, that generally centers on men as the main character. And with these holiday movies, it's always, well, usually the main character is a woman who, as you said, needs to be reminded of this quaint upbringing she had and everything she needed was actually right there in front of her. She just needed to be reminded. The other thing that's also quite familiar in these movies is the setting. I really thought, and don't laugh at me, please. I really thought when I moved to Connecticut that it was going to look like all the holiday movies that I watched, that it would be this quaint small town that everyone knew each other. You met in the town square and it's been nothing like that. And yet Connecticut is still this go-to place for these films. What makes a place like Connecticut so appealing for a production company when they're thinking about where could we actually film this movie and get across that feeling. Another factor to these holiday movies is that there is a visual aesthetic, right? That a lot of these filmmakers um, are going for. And I think Connecticut really fits the bill for a lot of them. It's the seasons, it's colder, um, there might be snow. (laughs) Um, And there's this idea that you know, in Connecticut, there's, it, it, you know, it's like a small town feeling. There's a one main street. It, it, it just kind of aligns with the aesthetic that a lot of these filmmakers are kind of going for, which is another factor as to why people go to these these movies during this time of year. For all of the things that I love about holiday movies, all of the things that are familiar and comforting and put me at ease, One of the things that continues to trouble me is the lack of representation. So that even though we are seeing more diverse characters and cast, it is still sort of the, you know, girl meets boy or reunites with boy. There's not a lot of gender diversity in the films. There's not a lot of racial and ethnic diversity or even place when we look at And I often think about how commercials have changed to become more inclusive. And it makes me wonder, will holiday movies follow suit? What's your take on that? As someone who reports on this and has been able to see the evolution of the genre, do you think it's getting better at representation or at least acknowledging it? Or is there still a way to go? I think that, you know, there are the major players who uh, like Hallmark Channel, right? And Lifetime. Um, and and now Great American Family, who are the kind of major kind of broadcast networks that that kind of produce a lot of these holiday movies. I think there is a kind of a march forward in terms of inclusivity, in, in terms of diversity with storytelling, in terms of featuring, you know, different kind of walks of life, as you mentioned. Um, so Lifetime has always been a very at the forefront, I suppose, of of this. Hallmark is following suit. I mean, there are more movies. Of featuring more racially diverse uh, uh, casts, ensembles. Um, there are a lot of movies actually this year that feature characters um, that are not um, just, you know, the typical characters that you would see in movies, which probably would not have happened maybe even five years ago. Um, there are um, a lot more LGBTQ friendly 
storylines at the center of these movies. Um, not enough, but you know, there is a there is an effort. There there is an effort there. I appreciate that reminder, right? That change is possible, even if it may be incremental, it is an acknowledgement and it is a step forward. And what we've seen is some of those major network players in the holiday movie genre also thinking about what are the movies we can create that every year people will come back to while still introducing new movies. So let me ask you this question as I'm deciding what I'm going to do during the holiday break. It's one of the things I look forward to, right? Like a a good mug of cocoa, some fuzzy socks, and a marathon of movies that I can watch. What's on your must-watch list? In terms of the new holiday movies that are being offered this year that are coming up, um, one movie, uh, especially on Hallmark Channel, that might be of interest is Christmas on Cherry Lane. That movie features um, one of the main uh, storylines is is LGBTQ focused with Jonathan Bennett and Vincent Rodriguez III. Did that just happen? We're going to be parents tonight. While we host a dinner party for a dozen people. Uh, 14, Lisa and Emily. And we have no kitchen to prepare that dinner. So that is um, one to watch on Hallmark Channel. And then, um, you know, others are friends and family Christmas, speaking of um, LGBTQ friendly storylines. That one focuses on two women. So that is actually quite groundbreaking for for Hallmark to have a a kind of a a lesbian storyline. You know, Yes Chef Christmas stars uh, Tia Maori and um, Buddy Velastro from Cake Boss, which is the strangest team up. Time to match you with your mentors. Not him, not him, not him. Well, this should be fun. (sighs) She is too sensitive to make it as a real chef. You're a bad teacher. You know, if this were Hogwarts, you'd be Snape. Did you not read the books? What? And that's on Lifetime, so. There's there's a lot though. There's over a hundred holiday movies this year, um, so there's quite a few to to pick. You said it. It's quite a pairing that one would never expect, but I think that to me is also the beauty of the genre that there are all of these predictable pieces, and then something like who's the group that you're going to have together? Who will be the actors that are there? And you mentioned Lifetime. We know that Hallmark Channel is also a go-to. And now we're seeing streaming services enter into this field. So my family and I watch Candy Cane Lane because we love Eddie Murphy. We love Tracy Ellis Ross and thought this is either going to be completely ridiculous or completely funny. What is all this? What is is all that? You said to get a plan, so I got a plan. Okay. Hey, look, I know it looks like a lot, but I got to do something spectacular. Okay. Like something they've never seen before. Okay. Well, be, ooh, mm. I was talking about a plan for after Christmas. Mm. Yes. Like, maybe update your LinkedIn. Telling your vendors. Letting people know you're back on the market. Mm-hmm. Be good. You know why? Why? Because I'm going to win Candy Cane Lane. Oh, my love. I know that this is something that's so important to you, but I think that you need to consider the idea that you might not win. Oh, well, I also might not not win. And it was a bit of both in the best ways possible. What's your take on on having streaming industries come into this genre as well, given all the things that they can do differently? I think variety is always um, a marker of, you know, success, right, in the genre. And Netflix has been a player in 
in Christmas movies for the past couple years, actually. But I think it's great that streaming uh, platforms are really kind of investing in in this uh, space as well. As a journalist, part of your job is watching all of these films, of tracking the evolution, seeing what it means for broader trends, what it communicates to us, but also for me, the sheer possibility of creativity, which is amazing. And I think that your work captures that. When you think about holiday movies, what is it that makes you say, this is a genre that we should pay more attention to? That's a good question. I mean, I think that it's a genre that really makes people feel joy. There's a, a an element of kind of aspiration too built into a lot of these movies where it's like the reality that we all live in, but just slightly heightened and a little bit shinier and just just a lot better. These movies show us a world, a community and experience that is aspirational. And frankly, at a time when everything seems so heavy and so divided, I think we all need and deserve more joy. So if the movies give it to us, then by all means, keep watching them. Filiana Ng is a journalist covering entertainment and television. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. And if you love an episode, please remember to leave us a comment. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean, wishing you and yours a very happy holidays. 